everyone. Quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone, we are back with another episode of Empire. Super excited for this one. We have Santiago co-hosting with me, and we have Ilya Polo Sukin. How am I how am I doing on the pronoun, pronunciation? That's there? good. Okay, That's good. cool. Uh, <laughs> co-founder, yeah, co-founder of Near, uh, one of the most exciting L1s uh, going on right now. You guys uh, recently, Near Protocol raised a $150 million funding round, I think it was, from Three Arrows, Mechanism, Dragonfly, and recent Jump, Alameda, Amber Group, and many others. Ilya, I think it'd be really helpful just to start out with folks. Um, Last year felt like the year of the L1, right? There are all these L1s that were taking off uh, and Nier kind of came in and you guys have been building this for a couple of years now. Really exciting. Um, and so I just wanted to hear from your point of view, like why you're taking on this challenge of building on another L1. And then we can get more into the weeds of what is Nier, why is it exciting, things like that. But why, why are you taking on this challenge? Why do, why do we need another L1? Well, we started in like August 18 which actually is probably the latest of, uh, well, maybe Avalanche started a little bit later. And kind of back then, uh, we were actually pivoting away from a different startup and we were actually planning to, to use blockchain for our own use case. So just really looking through all of the solutions that were, and also the ones that are in development, none of them matched kind of our expectation of what a, you know, scalable, simple to use, uh, and secure blockchain should be. And in general, kind of the belief behind Near in many ways is that like you cannot build a perfect blockchain. That's just impossible. But you, you know, you can iteratively approach uh, perfection and kind of continuously improve. And so Near really stands for you know continuously improving, continuously iterating, um, both in name and in the culture. Can you elaborate more on what you mean by that? Um, and why is it different from perhaps other projects and the approach that they're taking? From my perspective, blockchain as a concept, right, and Web3 in general is a novel way to, to kind of innovate on protocols, right? Uh, I think the really good example is IP, uh, like internet protocol, right, IP, which had the V4 and V6. So V4 is still used, right? We're probably running right now through V4. Um, even though V6 actually was finalized in like 95. So it's been like, whatever, 27 years of trying to roll it out. And so the benefit is of blockchain is that we have this global consensus where we can roll out upgrades and kind of innovation really like way faster, right? We can actually build upgradable protocols and get the whole community, whole set of users and stakeholders to align and upgrade. And so from this perspective, however, the governance is structured, like soft governance, hard governance, you know, on-chain voting, off-chain voting, whatever, like that doesn't really matter. What matters is a culture behind that is willing to continue innovate, iterate, take ideas, you know, try it, while still obviously, you know, protecting downside, you know, maintaining security, managing the kind of the set of criteria that it's set out to do. And so the set of criteria we set out to do is to be simple, secure, and scalable, right? That's kind of you know, very, very simple set of criteria, but they really mean that we, we really optimize it for simplicity of usage and of development. We changed how our account model works because of that. So we are, you know, our accounts are normal usernames. Um, the, you know, each account has number of keys with different permissions, which allow us to create different models of interaction. And similarly on the, on the development side, you know, choosing WebAssembly which is kind of a, you know, now, like in every browser, we're probably right now actually using it to record this mm -hmm. and uh, uh, like has a lot of compilers that are running with it. And, you know, like the best example of power of WebAssembly is that we took EVM code, right, from the Ethereum client and ran it as a smart contract on Near. And this is what Aurora is. Right. I mean, obviously, a lot of more work went into it to make that work. But like the original experiment actually took only like two days to put together because like literally taking existing code, just running it. And so and we have like even more cool stuff coming on that in that regards, um, just like showcasing how powerful this platform can be. But then beyond that, how do we secure users? How do we kind of ensure that um, 
like things are not stolen, not fished, not scammed, etc. Right. So a lot of things that right now people are building are around like how to ensure that contract was audited directly on chain, right? Contract audit registry on chain, that there's no vulnerability, known vulnerabilities. That there is, uh, for example, um, if there's issues with uh, with the wallets, right, to, to detect that and stuff like this, like kind of building up actually infrastructure for security. And scalability, like again, you know, we want to have billions of users on this platform. It needs to scale to that. It needs to be able to handle it. The only way to do it is actually, you know, run on more than one machine. And at the same time, like it needs to run fast. So like a lot of decisions we made are, you know, prioritizing kind of performance over uh, some of the other things and making sure that, you know, you are able to do this and then kind of continuously iterating from there and, and improving. So like kind of technical solutions, but they span from this culture of like, how do we ensure this property from continue innovating and changing, right? I think like we've, we've did uh, 28 protocol upgrades in past since mainnet launch. And so like each one had like, you know, some improvement to the protocol and like the, you know, the nodes have accepted it, you know, they validated the code and then uh, it like automatically switched the protocol um, after some threshold of stake has switched the version. I'm going to ask a very basic question that maybe for our listeners would be helpful to understand. We talk a lot about um, this trade-offs that you make when building. And one of those is like we talk about performance and security, decentralization, like why, why doesn't Ethereum like scale um, as perhaps much as we've wanted to? Like, one, do you think that Ethereum can support a billion users today? And if not, why? And why are you different? Like, you talk about trade-offs. So just very basic, but I think it would be helpful to contextualize this conversation there. For sure, yeah. So I think there there's some kind of what Ethereum is now. So let's call it ETH1. And so Iswan cannot handle billion users, right? It, it, you know, has issues handling the, or like it's by design, you know, creates high price hike until it prices out most of the users, right? Just to make sure I fully understand Hilia, because I, I really like Santiago's question. I want to make sure I fully get it. it. Ethereum can't scale to a billion users because of its like ne- negative network effects, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. like the the think of it this way: Ethereum is running on one computer. So, like, I mean, every every computer in the system replicates exactly the same what one computer does, and so one computer can only do this much work. This is also why you know switch to proof of stake actually doesn't change anything. Like, it's still one computer. Um, and so, the similarly, how Solana, for example, is still one computer, right? Just way bigger computer uh, that they run, and they. Like, kind of remo- removed a lot of things that Ethereum, for example, does. When you say, just so we're on, sorry, when you say one computer, it's like one state, one machine. Exactly, yeah. It's 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 pretty much every single transaction. Like if you think, if you look from the specific computer that you have in front of you, right, every single transaction needs to arrive to this computer. This computer needs to process every single transaction, check, validate it, check the state updated, save that state updates to the hard drive, and then, you know, transmit more information, right? And so it doesn't matter how many nodes in a network you have, like how decentralized it is, the performance is limited by what one computer can do. And like, it's actually like median of the, all the computers in the network uh, kind of performance at the end. That's why, yeah, if you, if you run way, you know, more expensive hardware, the network will run faster kind of naturally. Uh, but then, you know, whatever the distribution of the hardware you have in the network, it kind of defines what you can do. And so, you know, as, as we're talking about kind of more and more users coming in, uh, what happens in Ethereum naturally is that you're, uh, you know, you're competing for the same resources that are limited. And so they already, you know, even with tens of thousands of people, they're, you're already filling out all those resources. So then you start to increase the price for this resource, right? So you just have a market economy. And so the 10,000 people who ha- who can pay the most are using it, and then everybody else are kind of priced out, right? And so that's why, like, you know, on Ethereum, you have mostly just DeFi left because uh, this is who is willing to pay these prices because they can actually extract this value. Now, the sharding or roll-ups or parachains, app chains, whatever, whatever, whatever the principle of scaling that is used, right? is the way to go because this is where 
you are parallelizing processing, you have more different independent state machines or or uh, kind of computers that are running. And so now not every single transaction need to hit um, every single machine. And so that is, you know, how internet works, like Google, Facebook, not all users are sitting on one computer in Facebook, right? It's actually, um, you know, lots of servers that, you know, partition the users between some, by some properties. And so like, this is a way to scale. So, I mean, this is why, you know, like people have been talking about charting, people have been talking about rollups and Polkadot. And so uh, Polkadot is actually just a rollup as well. And so from this perspective, like that is, that is a solution that's needed. And now the trade-offs comes in, which is like, how do you actually structure this system altogether for, such that user experience and can developer experience works? And so when we're talking about rollups, especially optimistic rollups, what you are kind of experiencing is, you know, huge lag. You still need to, for example, if your source of security is on, um, on Ethereum, you still need to check in your transactions to Ethereum. So you still want all the transactions that you have to hit every single machine in the Ethereum network. And so that is expensive, that is slow, that is also, you know, like requires like additional, a lot of additional logic. Um, this is kind of similar to, in a way, what Polkadot is, but they're like starting to do sampling. And so sharding is an approach where you kind of use both cryptography and economy to ensure that kind of without everyone seeing every single transaction, you're still able to have the same security properties. Um, and that's just hard. Like it's it's a hard problem. Like we, we were pretty arrogant in the beginning thinking we can implement it uh, easily. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we learned our lesson. I mean, if you haven't seen, we've interviewed a lot of protocols. We've kind of learned a lot from others. We've invented kind of some methods ourselves and end up like changing halfway in uh, how we're doing it. But uh, we can have the protocol that um, works for this stage. And we also kind of continue working on evolution of that as well with new cryptography, with new methods mm -hmm. coming in. The It's felt to me like uh, Ethereum's scalability roadmap has changed over time. Um, sharding, now rollups are the talk of town on L2s. Um, at what point, and is it fair to say that what you guys largely inspired by perhaps an initial version of Ethereum's kind of scalability roadmap and just executing with this new mantra philosophy of like fast iteration uh, and maybe making some trade-offs along the way? Yeah, I mean, the you can uh, joke that East 2 is near. Uh, <laughs> that, that, was, that was a 2019 joke. Yeah, so kind of, I would say like back in 2018, like end of 2018, beginning of 2019, yeah, we were very much kind of aligned in spirit with what East 2 back then was kind of communicated. And so that's why we're having a lot of conversations with the research team back then um, in the Ethereum side. And I would say like they are trying to solve like, actually, I think Vitalik posted like this Rose Not Traveled, right? Like they're trying to solve for a lot of like more complex set of requirements, right? Where, yeah, we've uh, maybe kind of been more pragmatic saying like, okay, let's launch, uh, you know, some set of functionality and then kind of continuously upgrade and, and uh, you know, decentralize more, you know, add more capacity, add more things like that, right? Like, for example, Ethereum wanted to launch with like a thousand shards day one, right? That's really hard also not not useful then like okay 64 shards like still you know don't you don't need that in the beginning and also i think that just the requirement of transitioning east one to east two itself is like forced transition is very complicated and so so yeah from some perspective we've kind of been executing on what they were talking about but at the same time like the specific design is pretty different because kind of we actually try to implement some of the things that uh, kind of originally we also were thinking about and then realized that there's way better design that, um, you know, is around like having still a single chain, but uh, sharding blocks, right? And so that design on itself is way easier to kind of reason for developers and users. Like you don't need to think about shards as a user, as a developer, which is uh, still kind of what East2 was uh, talking about, mm -hmm. but it allows to actually 
continue scales of block size and execution, right, and state. We've seen a lot of new projects um, be quite centralized. Uh, there's a team that is behind a lot of the roadmap and executing it. Um, fair to say that near Solana, perhaps even Polkadot and Avalanche, uh, Cosmos to some extent, are more much more centralized from a product development standpoint than Ethereum. Um, now, I don't know if you agree with that. To some extent, I would say similarly how Ethereum started being a, t- a single team, right? That then over time uh, started to decentralize, right? It, similar thing happening to Nier. So um, already we have, I think, three, four, like, for example, Aurora was one of the teams that were inside the Nier Inc., um, which has spun out. It's a separate team, you know, separate tokens, separate fundraise that are building on top. They also are contributing to the core protocol themselves because they have actual needs for their for their use case um, we have another team that uh, working on more like private blockchain use cases we have uh, another team that working more on storage use cases using again the same infrastructure and so kind of the way I like to think about it is you know you have a Linux project right which started you know centralized with Linux and then over time more and more companies and people are started to contribute to it as it became more and more popular. And then you have lots of different companies which have a business, right? Like Red Hat and Canonical and, you know, Intel and Google as well, uh, which using this project for their own needs and they're, you know, actually paying large engineering teams to contribute to it and build it. Mm-hmm. You still need some kind of coordination process around that, like that, you know, there will, will always be some points of centralization when you're talking about products because somebody needs to make decision, but that's just part of the kind of open source process. Mm-hmm. You started near in 2017, I believe. Um, 2018. 2018. The state of Ethereum was much different. I think L2s were just very experimental, even though Vitalik's been talking about scalability since day one. If you were to start building near today, would you take the same approach, meaning decide to build an entire new kind of L1, or would you be more focused on perhaps building an L2 on top of Ethereum? That's an interesting question. I mean, starting on one right now, it, it depends what the other world looks like, though. That's that's kind of <laughs> where it's hard to say. Uh, because, like, I think, like, right now, it doesn't really make sense to start L1 or L2, uh, per se. Um, there's a lot of already kind of, kind of existing stuff out there. Um, I do think that, if we're talking about like up depends on the type of uh, L2, but the the thing that I think is still important that I don't think Ethereum is solving is this ability to continue innovating. Like that's honestly that is bigger to me, bigger question than specific technical decisions. Um, because like being able to make decisions in general is important right and so um so i think like from this perspective it's more around like maybe would have worked on the governance in ethereum if like if i i was the kind of entrenched into that community uh, um back then when we were just starting right we were kind of coming from the side and so i I would say we were not really like as accepted and as as clear like how how to approach the Things like that. I want to get more into that um, because I think uh, I was going to ask you why not just become an, a core ETH researcher. It sounds like it was quite difficult for you to to actually do that, and it's felt. I don't know if you would agree with that, and uh, maybe for our listeners, it'd be helpful to understand. Like, if someone today wants to like make a proposal to upgrade Ethereum, it's probably like much much more difficult than what it would be if they were to decide to join near as a engineer and try to execute on a particular um idea that they have maybe it's a breakthrough um is that true and and if you could give more color it'd be great i think there are few sides of this right one is um yeah there's no like process i mean there's like specific people which you you know if you know them you talk to them and you figure out kind of how to do this but there's no like super clear process and and to be clear like i wouldn't say that anybody has this process in blockchain right now so this is something that i actually want to f- um, work on for near ecosystem with all those teams that are actually now contributing to protocol 
um, to figure out. But yeah, like there needs to be a process where a anonymous, you know, can come in and propose a change to a protocol, and this pro- and this will be going through some process of you know validation, decision making, and evaluation, like evaluation and potentially implementation, independently of who that person is, right, in the ecosystem and uh, in the community. And so right now, nobody has such processes. And so then if we're talking about Ethereum, then there's no clear company or project to join either to, uh, to kind of do that. And so in, I would also say that there is also a big problem of incentives. And so the incentivization, and I know like Vitalik have been talking about how to address this, but like generally this problem kind of is bigger one is that going to build some DeFi project right now is way more kind of financially um, beneficial for, you know, if we're talking about like core engineer, core researcher, or like starting a hedge fund or doing anything, which, you know, those people can, than going into core development because there's no actual upside in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that was like when we were starting, uh, we were already a funded, VC funded company. And so if we, we actually, that's what I'm saying. Like we talked with with the team, with the research team, and we were suggesting to, you know, participate and build. But there one were needed to be some kind of upside in this work, mm-hmm. and not just for us, like for everyone. Like I believe everyone who participated in these two developments should have some upside, kind of mm-hmm. on delivery, right? Probably, you know, things would have moved maybe faster, and so. Uh, that doesn't exist. And so again, this is something that like from a governance perspective and from a perspective of um, kind of ability to innovate and, and is important piece. Mm-hmm. It's like there needs to be an upside that attached to delivery of large projects and milestones. Part of why we're doing a lot of the spin-offs, for example, and, and incubation and doing projects who have their own kind of token or incentive structures as well, because they can attract now, uh, you know, very good people to actually work and it it doesn't mean like people are incentivized by money per se like this is something like i saw a lot of like on twitter people kind of complaining it's like oh you know these core developers asking for more money like yada 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 like oh they should be doing this for you know for the sake of it it's more of a a opportunity cost right like you know if you can be doing something else like it's as interesting for example to do some cool DeFi project as core development right Mm -hmm. and so and B, it's really being kind of rewarded for your work, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, like it's not it's not that, you know, going from X to like 10X, like if X is already reasonable for living, is that changing your life? It actually doesn't, mm-hmm. but it's actually like rewarding and you are able to then reinvest it back into projects, into the ecosystem, into doing all this. Do you think that Nier um, struggles with that same problem over time? Well, so my goal is to make sure we don't, right? Like how, how I, I do, do want to do that. Yeah. Well, so th- this is what, like, I want to make sure that a full Anon are able to make suggestions and like create new protocol changes and proposals, including saying that everything that these guys did is insane or stupid and we have way better design. Let's rip everything off. And that will be considered, decided, and potentially like funded through like with an upside uh, kind of structure. So th- this is a process that I like want to make sure we have as part of our governance in in the ecosystem. And so I, like I've been talking with, I mean about some of this with like folks and at, like Neocon and everything. So like really is just kind of putting it together into a structure that and a process that kind of everybody can follow. Ilya, I want to uh, pivot a little bit and start talking kind of compare near to some other things. Did you ever read um, Hasib Qureshi from Dragonfly's piece on blockchains or cities? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen that. What do we uh, from a from someone building a blockchain? <laughs> I think he compared you guys to San Francisco. What are your What are your thoughts on the analogy? I mean, I think like on one side, I, I understand and kind of it's useful for people to have some analogies, um, and then for people to operate, uh, like to think about it, but. Uh, I think the generally the problem is like that all those things are more nuanced and so it's always hard to say right but I think like the culture wise it make like I think the 
the culture part is definitely true. I think like there's blockchains have pretty different cultures. Um, some of it is, you know, kind of expression of the founder. Some of it is actually expression of the early team. Some of it is, you know, just like what whatever formed around that and kind of works completely independent of what the you know founders and team were planning or or were having themselves, right? And so that definitely comes out in projects, in you know, in the community, in ecosystem, etc. I think on the technical side, again, my belief in in this idea of continuous iteration and kind of continuously improving, which I would say San Francisco is definitely not. Uh, <laughs> if you try to use internet there, like compared to some other place, like third world countries have better internet than San Francisco sometimes. Um, but generally the kind of, you know, from, from perspective of the situation, the, and, and like we have learned from everyone, we have kind of, um, you know, bring ideas, we share ideas, we're trying to kind of select set of, set of, uh, for example, parameters that, that uh, work better for, for the use case, for kind of for generally use cases that we see in blockchain, right? And so, I mean, the example I, I, I like is like, if the network decides that, and community decides that the, um, that they want to run more, expensive and more uh, performant hardware then well this isn't this is a way to go right it's like and then the network performance will increase and actually each shard on near will run can run you know potentially as fast as solana like if we turn off for example authenticated data structures so like you know things like that like specific technique technical parameters they can change if the community decides that this is the way to go and so um this is where again the situation comes in and like deciding on what what are the ways we want to improve continuously like looking what are the things that make sense and what doesn't and 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 innovating uh but i think the culture piece is definitely kind of yeah this build a culture this kind of approach to like figure out what are the new innovative ideas you know investing long term Mm -hmm. uh that that is for sure there We interrupt your programming with a special announcement. Empire has a new sponsor. Santi and I are very excited to welcome BitMEX. That is right. BitMEX is back. The exchange we all know and love is back and better than ever. We're going to be dropping a couple updates on BitMEX over the next couple of months. This first one is a big one. Coming soon, BitMEX is rolling out their spot exchange and they're giving away $500,000 in Bitcoin to new users. That's right. Listening to Empire has got the alpha. Santi and I got you $500,000 in Bitcoin going to new users. For the OGs, I don't think I need to tell you why you need to use BitMEX. It's a love of the game kind of thing. You respect crypto, you use BitMEX. For those newer to the uh, industry, BitMEX has a long and great history of innovation since their launch in 2014. They created perps and a whole lot more. Now they're back, they're better than ever, they're making waves. So what do you need to do? Go sign up for the BitMEX Spot Exchange for a chance to win some of the $500,000 in Bitcoin that BitMEX is giving away. B-I-T-M-E-X, B-I-T-M-E-X.com, that's BitMEX.com, go make it happen. Now let's get back to the show. You alluded to this earlier, but I'm curious if you could just spend a moment on discussing kind of how your sharding road, like what's the latest of your sharding roadmap? Uh, what, how have things changed? Ilya, I'm going to ask an, uh, an even, uh, I'm going to ask a really stupid question, which is you're talking to a big brain with Santiago. For me, I need you to dumb down sharding actually, and just <laughs> almost tell me like, what is sharding at a high level? And then we can get into uh, Santiago's question. Good, good point. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, at, at a basis of it, sharding, it just means instead of running everything on one computer, right, you split your transactions, your, you know, your contracts on different machines and running things in parallel, right? Again, like if we're talking about Facebook or Google, right, Google doesn't con- store all documents on one machine, right? There's lots of machines, lots of computers, and some subset of documents like, you know, Wikipedia, for the sake of example, sits on one computer, and you know your Yahoo News on another computer, and your New York Times on another computer. And so, when you're asking the question, it you know knows where to go, finds it, retrieves it, and shows you. Now that sounds to me like very the, that instance I think works in Web two because there is centralization, right? There is probably a I think of like these things as like uh, airport control towers. 
there's one kind of tower that like routes planes and like knows where everything is. But does that present challenges in a decentralized world? Maybe that's totally wrong. I'm, I'm an idiot technically, but. Well, so actually, I mean, the way Google works, it's not right. Because you have, you know, I don't know what is it by now, probably hundred plus data centers. Uh, they have replication. Each each actually piece of data is located at least. I mean, for like hot data, it's located probably in like hundreds of machines. Um, so actually, like Google is reasonably decentralized and is able to hold off. Like even when some data centers going offline, which they do actually all the time. And so, uh, like Google is example of decentralized. It's not it's not a permissionless system, right? You cannot like spin up a new data center yourself and and kind of start serving Google results. But it is a decentralized system. I mean, it's distributed. And they have consensus, BFT consensus inside as well for deciding on things. Um, and so each each like what you call central control tower is actually there's a lot of them and they all have kind of think of it as a as a table which says where to look and then there's a replication of the of the data itself, right? So each each Wikipedia data actually lives on multiple in multiple places and each controller knows which one is the closest one they should go to. So going going to blockchain, um, if we have, let's say two accounts, one is my account, one is a Uniswap account. Uh, Uniswap account, you know, contains information about how much data, how much money does, you know, the pool has. My account contains how much uh, money I have of some token. Uh, in a single sharded system or non-sharded system like Ethereum Solana, all of this lives on one machine, kind of in one state. Process like all the transactions are processed in order, um, and uh, kind of you don't have you don't have any like complexity, but you also have like limit how much you can do. Now in sharded system, these things now live potentially can live on different shards, like in in different computers, kind of in in, in, in processed independently. And so the way um, kind of the way Near does it, and which is pretty unique in this sense, is that instead of uh, kind of think, saying that, oh, actually, these things now are different chains, and then we're kind of trying to synchronize chains, we say still one blockchain, but, uh, and this is still one sharp, like space of accounts, right? Um, they just somehow deterministically are split between different shards. And so yeah. what this means also, like, you don't need to have a, uh, control control tower because you by just you know knowing the account actually know which shard it's on. In traditional software, I think there was a shift from monolithic architecture to microservices. Now, tell me if this is totally off base. Sounds like what you're saying is Ethereum is like monolithic, which is one kind of state, all these applications in in one stack, if you will. What you're saying is these shards could be thought of as microservices, which is where a lot of, I think, like more like Google's and of the world kind of run that like Netflix in order to stream all this stuff. Like it requires a, a big skill. It was a big scalability kind of breakthrough. And then the novelty of Nier is figuring out how to figure out this like consensus and being deterministic of these shards talking to each other. It sounds to me like the secret sauce of Nier, and you tell me this is totally off base, is that reaching this it's not the shards themselves it's like how do you ensure that there's this deterministic uh, there is kind of consensus amongst these shards to extent yeah not the secret sauce by the way it's all public <laughs> but um yeah i think the kind of generally the problem with with sharded blockchains has been yeah it's like how do you coordinate all this because like the first we actually were, wrote first version and we had something in like march 2019 which we thought okay we're done and then just like coordination problem of all those shards and everything was like a lot of complexity. And so it kind of switching your mind from like, oh, we're going to run a lot of chains, which is what rollups and kind of like parachains are, and then trying to coordinate between them, which is complicated. And so that's why both in case of Polkadot and in rollups and Ethereum, you actually need to go through the your Ethereum or part or, or relay chain and go back up, right? Which is slow and complex. Instead saying like actually, well, don't think of it as these things as separate things, right? As separate rollup, like optimism here, arbitrum here, but think of it as like one space and then we just actually shard the block itself, right? So kind of some transactions are, you know, in one shard, some transactions in another shard. And then we figure out how to like move the data, like make sure that everything processes properly. But at the end you have just one block 
Like literally on near Explorer, if you go and open blocks, it's just one block. It's actually four shards right now, but it's one block. You just see all transactions across all shards. And like to actually f find all the sharding information, you need to go like to RPC or some, some internal tooling because we actually don't even want to show to the users and developers much about sharding because we're actually planning to change some of the layout structuring and stuff like this. And so we don't want them to depend on that. And so the idea was actually to isolate in a way users and developers from thinking about shards completely and just like you deploy your contracts, you you know, you have your wallets, you transact, everything works. And underneath, yeah, we kind of do like the blockchain itself does all the transfers, relaying messages, you know, ensuring data availability, ensuring consensus and it's and it's consensus every you know every block you know as soon as you have approvals it actually finalizes previous block uh, in normal cases and so you have like fast finality as well on across all shards and so that kind of like set of properties allow to have yeah a scalable but still uh, very much kind of performance system and uh, in a way kind of as a future evolution if we're talking about roadmap like that allows to continue innovating on this underlying design, right? We like one of the things we want to do, which right now, like this deterministic allocation to shards of accounts and contracts is in a way uh, very simple, right? Like we don't account for the kind of how much usage each contract gets. Like, and if we have like a, you know, some super popular contract, maybe we need it to put in a separate shard, right? So it has more capability on itself. And so, we can do this and actually Aurora is on a separate chart. It's actually uh, binded to a separate chart through a governance. But what we want to do is do this dynamically. We want to dynamically detect which contracts are getting a lot of usage and move them into separate shards um, while still maintaining the deterministic mapping where things are. And so that would allow to actually achieve this kind of, you know, similar how when you think of Amazon and you're running your Netflix, right? You don't think of like, hey, do I need to send it to the, you know, to the server in here or to the server there, right? Uh, is like switching from one movie to another will take seven days. Like you don't need to think about that, right? You're just using it and actually like it adds more machines when you need it, it, it removes them when it doesn't. So similar idea is like continue expanding number of shards when it needs it, contract when it doesn't. I want to ask you, I've seen you publicly kind of take a position that you're not, you're somewhat skeptical about Ethereum L2s um, in most cases. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but um, I'm curious um, how you, you're describing this kind of modular kind of blockchain idea. Like, can you explain to us like how Nier's dynamic sharding kind of is different, better than kind of some of these L2s, like, uh, you know, roll-up focused roadmaps with kind of data sharding, I don't know. If yeah, so, I mean, think of it this way. Um, like if, if we're talking about rollups, right, you kind of need to know which rollup you're going to. You need to send money there, send money back. There's a specific set of properties and lock-in lock mechanisms. And a lot of it can be kind of optimized there, but still this is uh, uh, very much something that as a user you need to think about. As a developer, you need to think about. If, you, if you're developing something on one, on one rollup, you now need to think about like, is the other tools I need to use are on this rollup or not? Is the other applications? If they are not, then I need to start building cross rollup communication protocol, right? Which is then you now infrastructure provider, not not a developer of application. And so, what kind of near does is is handling all like near protocol handling all that communication, all that kind of rollup, including spinning up more rollups. Think of it this way when you need it, and it does. I call them realistic rollups, like. Optimistic rollups meaning you know you do stuff and then you kind of wait until it catches up, right? Realistic rollups is when you know it's done as soon as it's kind of uh, you have the finality of the of the consensus. Um, and so yeah, like dynam dynamic sharding also just means that you get more rollups and things get reallocated between the quote unquote rollups when you need it. And as a user, you don't need to think about it. You don't need to think about like, hey, is this do I have money on this rollup or do I need to send it to that rollup? Is the USDT deployed there or there? Like all this kind of complexity of logic that actually both developers and users need to think about, here you don't. And so like this is, I mean, this complexity is true about Cosmos, it's complexity true about Polkadot. Like this complexity did not exist in Ethereum 1, right? You don't need to kind of 
considered. This is why we've seen so much innovation in DeFi uh, in Ethereum 1 because people just like, hey, you know, boom, done. It's like you can launch things really quickly. You can hook into existing apps and existing users can just use it. Like they don't need to move things around. And so like I think this compatibility is very important and it kind of breaks down in many ways through the rollup. Ilya, you've obviously taken a lot of inspiration from other folks, maybe in the early days of like of the ETH2 roadmap. You mentioned when you sat down with Justin Drake and Vitalik. When you look at other L1s like maybe Solana and Avalanche, what do you think they're doing really well where you think to yourself, oh, that's a really good idea. I'll take some inspiration from that. And when what what do you look at them and say, oh my God, that's, that's going to be a nightmare that people just do not realize what's happening behind the scenes? Good, interesting question. <laughs> I think, I mean, with Avalanche, we, we actually have implemented their consensus early on and uh, we've, we've um, published some research on that and decided not to do that uh, in result. I mean, I would say like with Avalanche, it, it was a really smart to use EVM, which is, you know, we end up kind of doing in, in the way on top as well. Um, kind of just allowing to really easily onboard uh, existing developers, existing apps. I think the way Solana kind of stood by their decision to do Rust and kind of and uh, just, you know, push through that and, and like even though they had, you know, not, not great developer tooling initially, but kind of invest in that has been a, a very good kind of example as well. I would say like, um, sharing the same belief, but uh, at the same time, kind of for us, optimizing for developers has been more uh, valuable. And so that's why we started Aurora because like, even though I do believe Rust and kind of developing more natively is better, but um, that doesn't really mean like if developers are asking, if the market is asking, like it should be uh, existing too, right? So that's what developer friendly actually means. <clears throat> so... I think the the main thing for me in Solana is the like non uh, like the trade off they made, which is not authenticating data structure, um, meaning like there's no Merkle trees, there's no proof of the of the storage, like it's only done with snapshots, uh, and so pretty much if you want provable kind of reads, you actually need to send transactions uh, into Solana. Uh, I think that's kind of a like a problematic approach uh, for many ways. And uh, we, we kind of, I mean, had a bunch of arguments about that with Anatoly uh, back in the day. But uh, the kind of gen- generally the, like from perspective of just like philosoph- philosophy, right? Solana saying like, hey, we're going to have, you know, kind of going to have powerful computers and powerful internet such that, you know, one, one computer will be enough for everyone. And so that's just like, you know, philosophically, I don't agree with. That's like a Moore's Law. Bet, exactly. I bet on Moore's Law, which is not necessarily up to the Solana Foundation or team to execute. It's just saying technology is going to meet us there. Yeah, yeah. Well, but like, you know, we know that when there is a, like actual usage growth, right? I mean, open, you know, Facebook user growth or Google user growth, it's not following Moore's Law, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just like naturally the, the number of users in the world will out, like that want to come to this technology will outpace really quickly the, uh, what, what they can do with hardware. I want to go back to this idea of composability because I think a lot of people in Ethereum are proud of that. If you want to scale, you'll break composability. That's just kind of the, this like singular... Uh, kind of a single transaction compatibility. And so layer two is example where it breaks. Um, I do want to caveat this that, you know, zero knowledge are magic. And so we can do everything with zero knowledge and scale infinitely um, to everything in fully composable way with zero knowledge uh, at some point. <laughs> and so it is, it is like worth investing. This is, this is also the reason why I believe in, in, you know, continuously innovating because, at some point, more and more stuff will be zero knowledge provable with uh, kind of fast performance, and so we'll you know need to replace some of the pieces with that because it actually will become feasible to run that. But if we're talking about now being pragmatic, um, making it possible to just not think about this kind of different environments, you know, different yeah, like as you said, you know, you have now. Do, 
like different cities that now you need to build bridges between because, well, it's actually really expensive to go back to, you know, um, to Ethereum and then up and it's also slow. And so you kind of, you're creating a lot more complexity in your ecosystem, right? Um, like, for example, you know, if somebody's like, hey, you know, send me some USDT and then you're like giving like, you know, address and saying like, well, I accept it on Ethereum, I accept it on Arbitrum and on maybe something else like it's like just okay well this is this is already more complex than than like if we're talking about normal people like not you know people who have account on every single network uh, <laughs> this is this is not normal and so so what near is trying to optimize for is yeah it's like hiding this complexity behind kind of behind the curtain where the protocol and you know core engineers and kind of other protocols like aurora and others are do are working and trying to yeah solve those problems kind of for everyone uh and then and then allow to users and developers just like yeah just send you know some funds to this you know username and and it's done right and and gets routed between different shards in our case but you can think of it as like roll-ups like you don't need to know which roll-up is that account on for example um and then you know because like we do it very performantly we do it like every like all kind of at every block level we are able to do you know it's pretty much invisible from the experience perspective uh to the user and so it is end up being composable obviously there's some you know caveats to that because of asynchronicity but generally uh it, it allows to compose applications very kind of very straightforwardly Ilya, I, I, I heard you say a couple of months ago, Web3 is about low switching costs and that decentralization is just a tool to achieve that. It sounds great in theory, but as a builder, right, the, the downside of low switching costs is that it makes it really, really hard for apps and protocols to attract like long-term capital and, and long-term users. Is this just a function of a new market or does crypto's low switching costs and like financial incentives just introduce this new paradigm where this is just the new the new normal and we have to get used to it? I think it's a new normal. I think that's kind of, if we don't want to end up in like a black mirror, you know, everybody's programmed by Facebook uh, world, we kind of need to adopt this low switching cost paradigm, which which means like you cannot build something and then enjoy, you know, perpetually the benefits of building a moat around it, which is like, to be clear, how most of the world's stuff works, right? Like somebody build a thing and then now this is this is entrenched, right? in so many ways that nobody else can actually beat it and, and can compete at it, even if they're doing a really terrible job, right? I'm talking about some, you know, telco providers and some other stuff. Um, and so, like, this low switching cost, this ability to kind of innovate means that, you know, it always keeps you on your toes, right? Like, I mean, look at the Uniswap and Sushi for a period of time, right? It's like, you know, they need to innovate or they will be disrupted by somebody else. And yeah, they'll, they'll kind of pull out all the capital as well. But if they innovate themselves, because they do have the brand, they do have the uh, kind of um, the you know the community, like the, the community becomes in many ways your moat in some way. But like community will move if you don't do anything. So it's important, like you you kind of move your moat from you know your data, all your data lives on Facebook servers, so you cannot leave. To you know the people can leave, but you are attracting them by you know, delivering best products and, and offers to them. So I think, yeah, it's a new new reality that we're actually actively trying to build. <laughs> On this point, what's your state of the world in like five, 10 years? Uh, multi-chain, just one chain to rule them all? I don't think there will be just one chain to rule them all. Uh, I do, like there definitely will be few. Uh, I don't think it will be a lot, but there'll be few. Um, they do have like lar really large network effects for sure. Um, but at the same time, this is why I believe in innovation and kind of continuous iteration is because any if any one of them kind of stops iterating and innovating, we'll see things like, and, and is not able like to self-disrupt itself. We'll see similar things happening where somebody new will come in and, you know, like absorb or in some way port uh, a lot of things. And so, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Right, right now, it's not clear that this is this will happen. But yeah, I think like few chains which are co continuously like not competing with each other, but continuously innovating and 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 uh, kind of offering different different things uh, to its developers and users. I think that that uh, is probably 
uh, big part of the future. And then a lot of app chains, a lot of kind of custom made uh, kind of side chains, which are designed for specific use cases, uh, kind of linked in into this. Yeah, Vitalik has been very critical recently about bridges. We've seen Wormhole Hack, we've seen Ronin, uh, we've seen, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, when you you talk about Aurora as an EVM compatible chain, which is bridging a lot of existing activity from Ethereum or EVM chain into near ecosystem. How do you think about bridges? What is your take on that? And do you agree with Vitalik or, or not? Um, I mean, I like it's, it's kind of two-sided things, right? On one side, yes. I mean, bridges are um, ha- have naturally the issue with security that like it, it's kind of one of few places where kind of it's the same as like attacking exchanges, right? Bridges and exchanges are kind of similar surface form of attack is because it's outside of your like, blockchain direct control. And so if something happens, like it's kind of already out, right? Um, and so it's definitely like if, if you're trying to steal money from somewhere, like exchanges and bridges are two 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 places to attack. Um, I think the the for example asset um, problem where you have like the same asset bridged from different places. I think that's actually a solvable problem, uh, and we can address that. And there's like I know at least like few protocols trying to address that in a very meaningful way. Um, they, I think the interesting thing is, for example, the way Rainbow Bridge works is by checking in light client of both chains to each other. And so, like, I mean, I believe this is the most secure way to do it. Uh, I mean, the next security level is actually checking in the full state and validating it with zero knowledge proof, um, for example. And so right now, actually, near is like a, a light client L2 of Ethereum, and Ethereum is a light client L2 of near. Uh, through that bridge, for example, right? So, so we'll see some of this more, more kind of in-depth verification that is happening, which on itself will be starting to protect more, right? Like there's no, uh, like in that security model, there's no multi-sig to attack, which what happened with Ronin, for example. Um, and this is actually the point that to make about bridges is the same point about L2s because L2s been attacked as well. Optimism had the same actually issues, very similar issue to the uh, to what um, the, the wormhole uh, like uh, had as well. So like the we are doing this connectivity right, and every single connectivity point is kind of attackable. But then the question obviously is around like underlying security. And so the more secure bridges we build, the the better uh, this connectivity will be. And we can build kind of continuously more secure bridges and kind of continuously more verification and. From this perspective, zero knowledge is actually a piece of the technology that uh, will allow us to do a lot of this stuff. Yeah. We always like to spend the kind of last segment of the episode talking about you as a person and your biggest learnings. Before we get get there, I want to just cover one thing that you kind of uh, half-jokingly said earlier, which is uh, when I said secret sauce, you said it's there for anyone to look at and then replicate. We're talking about low switching costs. Um, what is your view in terms of, there's few people that say, well, it sounds to us like it's super early in this space very, by number of developers, users, activity. And a large part of that maybe is a scalability problem. Um, like, do you worry about competition and someone else coming, uh, another Google engineer saying, okay, Elias done some really interesting stuff, but you know, I can just take that and improve it, twink it, tinker it, layer on, uh, raise all this money, better incentives and execute. Do you worry about that? Um, and how do you, like, as a founder, like, deal with this uh, hyper-competitive open-source world? So I think there are a few sides of this. One is, I mean, I would love to meet that person. <laughs> uh, the, so this is where I was talking about, like, like I, I do want to make sure that Near Ecosystem has a self-disruption mechanism where somebody like that comes in and says, well, this is cool, but I'll fix all this stuff uh, this way. And so... I want to offer them a method to do that as well as an upside to do that, right? I mean, right now, the easiest way is to hire them into one of the organizations that's working on core development and there's a bunch of open jobs for, for you know, we've hired a lot of Google engineers actually who are doing amazing work um, uh, on this. But in general, yeah, like there should be a way for somebody to come in and propose kind of, you know, substantial change. Like for example, well, you know, this paying with near token is, you know, 
let's pay with stablecoin, for example, right? And and offer offer us like go through a process, you know, sh show the reasons why, and then kind of take it, like being able to take a bet on that, and then if it pays out, you know, receive an upside from that. So that's like for sure part of the mechanism that of self disruption and kind of innovation that I want near ecosystem to have. Um, and at the same time. Uh, I think like it's really interesting to see kind of the uh, when you know some protocols just took the code of existing like Ethereum and you know forked it and and uh, kind of innovated in that. But you also see how like what issues they have encountered, and it's always kind of the same where they did not fully understand uh, what they were doing and what they were running, right? And so I think because this is a collaborative space, it's actually important to work like when you're doing stuff like this is to work with uh, with the people who are working on this and, and you actually can. And so if there is something like that where there's a specific case to kind of innovate on your know, ecosystem, like I'm open to having the conversation, I'm open to like offering a way to do that in the ecosystem um, and kind of push, push that forward. Ilya, I want to actually wrap it up with one of the most important things that you and me were talking about before we started recording, which is just Ukraine. Uh, and your your family's Ukrainian, and a lot of your team members are in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has received, I think, over 150 million in crypto do donations so far. Can you just kind of take us onto the ground and talk a little bit about how important crypto has been to folks in Ukraine, if if at all? Yeah, no, it's been an extremely important instrument and tool, and kind of the context of this being like when war just started, right? Uh, me and and like few folks who were in New York, we were like, well, what do we do, right? And the easiest thing is to donate. And the easiest way to donate is actually with crypto because you know it rise right away, right? You, like if we're talking about wire transfers and we're talking about sending them into Ukraine, you have no idea even, I mean, when it just started, we didn't even know if banking system will work, right? And you knew crypto will arrive. And so similarly, like, you know, a few days in, sounds like crypto entrepreneurs kind of gathered together and started on Chain Fund, which I'm a member, kind of a founding member of. And... Like the idea was like, hey, we can actually really quickly collect funds and distribute them really quickly and have transparency around it and, you know, able to do this stuff uh, kind of on the ground because we have friends who are literally on the ground, you know, volunteering, helping people, buying supplies, doing all the stuff. And like we can do all this really quickly, right? Imagining starting a new fund, new uh, nonprofit. This is like a month of paperwork, you know, NGO documentation, you know, bank setup. Uh, and then collecting donations from that via wire transfers, via, you know, AC, like all the stuff. It's just going to take like months and months. We were, we were up and running in like a few hours with multi-sigs and, you know, already posting the links everywhere, uh, you know, talking with folks in the ecosystem to repost it and get getting the first. And so, I, like, so far, I think we raised for Enchain specifically nine uh, or 10 million. And then, yeah, like the government kind of follow, followed that as well, starting the bunch of, uh, kind of accounts across all the networks. We actually just set up a account called Ukraine on Near, not Ukraine.Near, just Ukraine. And so, kind of really like spread, spreading spreading that and, and allowing really quickly to to collect these donations and actually get them to use. And including a lot of suppliers are willing to take crypto, or there's a kind of a somebody who can who can make the transaction uh, on the on the on the edge. And so that's been kind of. You know, fundamental. I think to like helping helping the people there getting getting money around, kind of moving. Like you know, we bought, bought a bunch of medicine, bunch of gear. Like you know, for example, uh, things um, uh, like the generators, um, because a lot of places without electricity now. Like if we're talking about hospitals as well, and so really kind of um, kind of you know, doing this really quickly and also very accountably. Like we have actual reports every day at the end of the day on all the expenditures, on all the income, right? Which, you know, usually NGO have a yearly report because like we were actually were thinking, hey, we will donate part of money to NGOs and they're like, can you provide us with a report? And they're like, yeah, we'll provide you with a report at the end of the year. And we're like, um, like when we talk about this like very dynamic situation, it's, you know, not like we need crypto, we need crypto time, time not the, other <laughs> tried fi time yeah you know i think there's this like 
uh, Western saying that, you know, developed worlds are the ones who need uh, crypto the most, but we don't actually see it much. I think that's really important to understand on the don donation side of things. But what about, you know, you, you had this tweet about Brex, right? Brex had to cancel um, payments in, I think, inside of Ukraine. And it wasn't because Brex wanted to do it. It's because of the uh, Biden's executive order, right? So when things like this start to happen, what does this, what does crypto actually mean for someone on the ground? who? Like Ukraine has like, it's top four country by crypto penetration in the world. Like a lot of a lot of people, you know, had some crypto savings, and and I mean, when this hit, like a you know, especially because you don't know what the foreign exchange rates will be, a lot of money kind of flood in into like crypto as well, uh, to as a as a way to um, to offset like potentially greed not going crazy, right? Um, and at the same time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the ability to just like know that the money is there, right? Like if we're talking about banks again, like you you never know, like especially in the first weeks. I mean, now we know like Kiev is you know has been defending itself really well, and uh, but like in the beginning it was not clear that you know the banks will still exist, right? To be like like we don't even know if national bank will stand, right? Or will be bombed tomorrow, and so like crypto was a way that's like completely independent of like some physical um, reality, which was under kind of uh, real duress. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of a way to, to kind of operate when, when you have so much uncertainty, um, which again, I think is like fundamental and also will be big part of kind of Ukraine recovery, I believe because actually they have passed a law, which like it wasn't development way before, but they have passed a law and signed it on legalizing kind of crypto, like pretty much defining crypto asset as a new type of asset and kind of defining a lot of uh, legal structure behind it. And they continue working on that actually right now. Um, so that's certainly the, the very positive aspect of all this. Sounds like, you know, crises like these like help catalyze certain movements. Uh, there is the other side here that might say, wait a minute, but Russia is also accepting Bitcoin for payments uh, for oil and other resources. So um, I'm curious what you think about that and 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 how do we kind of, because it is a neutral, technology is neutral, but the implementation of it is not necessarily neutral. I'm curious as a builder how you think about that. So, yeah, I believe in technology neutral and I believe technology should be neutral. Um the the way to think about it is that the people who are making transactions are the ones who are making decisions, right? Like if you think of, you know, somebody buying oil from Russia, it doesn't matter if they pay with Bitcoin or with trucks of, full of gold, right? Which, you know, is an alternative to be clear. Like that's just an instrument that you are, you know, doing a transaction, but the trans the decision to make a transaction is on that, you know, entity. And so if they are willing, if there are kind of, working around the sanctions or whatever, right, is is just the, like, this is on them. And so this is why, you know, crypto exchanges have banned sanction, like people on sanction lists. This is why, you know, a lot of companies have decided not to work with Russia. And like, from my perspective, anybody who is working with Russia, like specifically the Russian government is literally directly funding, you know, killing people in Ukraine. And so that that should be like, kind of a network effect, community effect of, like when we're talking about you know censorship resistant, it doesn't mean that we cannot censor. It just means that a single person or a single entity cannot censor something. But if a community decides that something is not appropriate, is not you know right behavior, it's still possible to you know uh, to do this, right? This is I mean this is when we talk about governance and kind of these yeah. objects. Well, Ilya, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to close with. I think this has been a fantastic episode. We've covered a lot here. I think this is a great overview from folks to learn about near. Um, you know, of course, where can people find you? Where can people, um, you know, um, learn more about Nier? Um, maybe there and, and any parting thoughts um, before we wrap it up would be great. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I mean, my name or IL Black Dragon. Uh, Nier.org is to learn more about Nier. Um, some, there's a really good blog. And if you scroll back into the past, there's some uh, good articles when we were still uh kind of building this out and thinking how, how like if we do, if you want to read more about sharding for example and kind of the evolution of thought um, but yeah no I think kind of the for me 
on one side, obviously the past month's been, you know, devastating and kind of very complicated and we've done been doing a lot of work to help in Ukraine. But on the other side, it's kind of showcased that what we're doing is very useful and valuable and kind of even going beyond that, uh, kind of something that, you know, we've talked about but haven't done yet, like Web3 reputation systems, you know, kind of uncensorship social networks and stuff like this are even more important now because including what Russia is doing inside for its own people, right? Where is they isolating them and programming them with their own media is kind of an important lesson that we should have media that is like accessible, but also trusted and people know kind of on a more, you know, ideally cryptographic, economic and kind of reputational ways that the, the information is correct and verified. And, and so uh, I think that that pieces are kind of becoming more and more important as well for me uh, as we kind of evolve uh, and then like this situation evolve. And so I, I, this is something that I'm, again, like governance is one piece, but also kind of reputation, social, all these pieces are uh, something that I'm, I'm looking forward to this year. And yeah, I'm inviting anyone who's interested to contact me. That's amazing. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on the pod. I know it's, uh, you know, you're super incredibly busy and, and you know, uh, best of luck to everyone in your team and family members and anyone else uh, that you know in Ukraine and uh, otherwise really excited what's happening in the near ecosystem. And, um, I guess last near con, is that happening? Is, is there plans to do something like that or next, sometime this year? We, we all know how much crypto folks like conferences. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are some plans, but I'll let the, the team, you know, to release that when they're ready. <laughs> That's the <Okay>. alpha leak. <laughs> so it it's is coming. Leak. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a leak of a leak. Partial yeah. leak. Yeah. Yeah. There's an announcement coming, yeah. <laughs> yeah, announcement about the announcement. Ilya, this was awesome, and thank you uh, so much for just being so generous with your time. And uh, yeah, I think Santi and I are wishing you all the best, and just, um, yeah, really excited to see what you build this year. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks again, Ilya. Take care.